Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 24, right in the middle of the Olivet Discourse. We're going to start with verse 15. In the last audio, in the previous verses, we talked about false prophets and false messiahs and lawlessness and the things that will occur at the end. Not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world, but the end of the Jewish order. Jesus is picking up on that theme to talk about the events that are going to lead to the ultimate downfall of Jerusalem. He's trying to warn his disciples about what will happen. So starting in verse 15, we're going to talk about the abomination of desolation. I'm going to finish that in this audio, and if we have time, we will talk about the great tribulation. I'm not sure we're going to get there. So we'll start with verse 15. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, Jesus says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So here's the famous abomination that causes desolation. Now, the phrase comes from Daniel. It appears in three scriptures in Daniel, two of which refer to AD 70, and one of which refers to Antiochus Epiphanes in the 3rd century B.C. Daniel 9:27. this is referring to AD 70. He will make a firm covenant with many. That's Jesus will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. That's when he gets crucified and no longer necessary to offer sacrifices and offering because he is the ultimate sacrifice and offering. All right. Then it says, In the abomination of desolation will be a wing of the temple, will be on a wing of the temple, and that doesn't make any sense, until the decree destruction is poured out on the desolator. Now, the, the Hebrew here is totally chaotic, as anybody, any scholar will tell you when he tries to translate that. Basically, what this is talking about is the Roman armies coming into Jerusalem and wiping it out. This is what John Gill says the reference is to. Adam Clark says, and I agree, that's just what he's talking about. So Jesus is picking up on that same abomination of desolation. Now, Daniel in Daniel 11.31 does mention another abomination of desolation. This is the one referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, where he says in Daniel 11.31, his forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the daily sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation, which is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He set up an altar to Zeus in the temple, and he put a sacrifice to pig on it, if I recall correctly. Also, killed a lot of Jews, too, in one of his trips to Israel. I think he took two trips. I think it's, the scholars disagree on how many trips he took to Israel, but every time he was there, it was a mess. It was bad news for the Jews, all right? But that's not the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about AD 70. And so was Daniel in Daniel 12:11. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, I'm not going to get into what that is. That's a very difficult passage. I, I'm going to take my best shot at explaining in a video I've got in my series on Orthodox Preterism. You can look that up on YouTube if you're interested in these verses in Daniel. But anyway, we're just going to summarize all that to make it simple and say that Jesus is talking about an abomination of desolation that occurs right around AD 70. What is it? Well, there's some options as to what Jesus meant. The first option is the option I take and which John Gill takes and which Adam Clark takes. The abomination which causes desolation is the Roman army. It can be in the holy land as well as the holy place. So if you take the Roman army as being an abomination because of all of its idolatrous standards, it comes into Israel, it stands on the Holy Land, and it causes desolation by destroying all the cities and ultimately destroying Jerusalem in the Holy Land. So the Roman army is the abomination that causes desolation. Again, this is not a unique opinion. John Gill, Adam Clark hold to that view. 
The way you get that view is by looking at Luke chapter 21, verse 20, in the parallel version of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says this, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Now, in Luke, he doesn't say abomination of desolation, but he does use the word desolation, and he ties that desolation with Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Now, of course, an army was considered abominable because of the Roman god's images on incense there. And abomination is something that is uh, is idolatrous, basically, causing moral pollution and spiritual pollution by idolatry, and that's what the Roman armies did with their idolatrous eagles when they came into the land. So I think that's very clear when you compare the two. Matthew's Jesus says abomination that causes desolation, and Luke, he says, Jerusalem is surrounded by armies that recognize that its desolation has come near. Especially when you consider that's exactly what happened. As I think I have mentioned in the previous audio, I'll mention it again. Cestius Gallus shows up. He was the Roman general that was charged with besieging Jerusalem. He unexpectedly and inexplicably withdrew from the city, retreated to the north. The zealots in the city of Jerusalem ran out the gates. They chased the army and actually beat Cestius in a battle. And while all that was going on, the Christians, in, when they saw that they had been encircled by the armies that caused desolation, when they saw the abomination that causes desolation, when they saw the Roman armies, that first they said, how are we supposed to flee like Jesus said? And then when the Cestius withdrew, then they say, ah, oh, that's how we flee, because now there's nobody stopping us. And they did. They, they fled the city, every Christian, according to Eusebius of Caesarea, Every Christian left the city, fled northwest, crossed the Jordan River to Pella, where they were safe during the remainder of the Jewish War. Now, there's some other options. This is a controversial passage, so let me just give you some other options. Some people say it is a statue placed in the temple by the Romans, but the problem with that is, is what has that got to do with fleeing? By the time the Romans got to the temple, they destroyed the city. There was no way anybody could flee. They were already, they would already be captured. Some people say it's the golden eagle Herod set on the temple gate. John Gill denies this because that was before Christ spoke the words. When you see the abomination of desolation flee, the golden eagle was set up before Jesus even spoke. Some people say it could be an image of Tiberius Caesar, which Pilate is said to have brought into the temple. Gill denies that too because the timing of this was just about the time that Jesus spoke, which is too soon. Jesus spoke in eighty thirty. Jesus is predicting events in the future. Some people say it's the destruction of Jerusalem itself. When you see the abomination which causes desolation, i.e. Jerusalem, when you see it, when you see it, when you see it destroyed, in other words, when you see it desolate, then flee. But the problem with that is it'd be too late because if you were still in the city, you'd be cooked. So I don't think those options are anywhere close to fulfilling it. I think that Gill and Clark are exactly right. It's referring to the Roman army that causes desolation. Now, when Jesus is talking about this abomination of desolations, he's referring to you. He says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, he's talking to four disciples, remember? Now, here is a case where I think if you get carried away by the audience relevance that arguments that Orthodox preterists like to use, that you can get too carried away by that because of those four disciples, how many of them were going to be in Jerusalem when in AD 66, I think it was, when Cestius Gallus showed up to see the Roman army surround Jerusalem? Probably none of them. So he's referring to you Christians who were around in Jerusalem at the time, referring to the disciples standing for the Christians 
when you Christians see the abomination that caused desolation, it's not when you, James, Peter, John, and Andrew, see the abomination that causes desolation. So I'll point that out so that preterists don't get too excited about that audience relevance. It can't mean his apostles in general. Many of them would be dead by eighty seventy, or they might be in other countries preaching the gospel, as John Gill points out. So, But what he means is all the disciples who would be in Jerusalem to see what was happening. Now, again, as I mentioned, the abomination of desolation stands in the holy place. That means, it, it, it makes one want to think it means the holy place in the temple. But now, the Greek term used here is not the typical Greek term that's used for the holy place in the temple. Remember, the holy place is the 20 by 10 cubit place where the showbread and the lampstand and the golden altar of incense were right in front of the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The holy place is a, is a, there's a technical word for that. It's called hagion. But in Matthew 24:15, our verse that we're just talking about, where the abomination of desolation will be, it says, in topo hagio, in the holy place. So that means it's an actual place, which means the Roman land excuse me the the jewish land it's not a it's not a technical term for the holy place in the temple now here's another option as to what holy place is besides the the land of jerusalem or the place of jerusalem is the temple itself because as josephus points out the romans brought their incense into the temple and placed them over against the eastern gate and sacrificed them to there but there's a problem with that if that was to be a sign to the christians who escaped to pella how could that happen after the temple's already destroyed and conquered by the Romans. Now, there's some way you can rescue that option. There's a way you can say, when you see the abomination which causes desolation, it means when you see the army surrounding the city, it doesn't mean that desolation happened right then. You see the army, you leave, and then the desolation happened later, which would be the incense in the temple, the idolatrous eagles in the temple. That's a possibility, but I think it's just much easier to say that when you see the Jerusalem army, which causes desolation, and it's an abomination because of its idolatry, get out of Dodge, leave Jerusalem, and flee. Makes a lot of sense to me. Side note here, in this verse, Jesus mentions the abomination that causes desolation. He says it is spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Jesus calls Daniel a prophet, and of course liberals, liberal Protestants who are enamored with the JEDP documentary hypothesis, who say that Daniel was not a prophet. They say that Daniel was not a prophet, that he was an historian who pretended to be a prophet. In other words, he's a sham, a liar, and a fraud. That he was writing after the events that he prophesied of, which completely takes the charm of Daniel away. Because when you read, like, for especially in Daniel 11, about the king of the north and the king of the south, and you see where all those events just track perfectly the six Syrian wars, so much so that liberals say, well, he, could, he couldn't have done that because of their, their naturalistic presuppositions. But if you take Daniel for who he was, prophesying before the event. It's a remarkable prophecy. All of the prophecies are remarkable, especially chapter 11, in my opinion. But Jesus calls Daniel a prophet. I'd much rather respect Jesus' opinion than liberals. I respect Jesus a lot more than I do liberals. I cannot tell you what I think about liberals. This is a family audio. Now, why did Matthew or Jesus say, let the reader understand? It's not clear whether Jesus, where Matthew's quoting Jesus or whether he's just adding a parenthetical remark. The Holman Christian Study Bible puts the quotes at the end of Holy Place, and then the parentheses are outside of the quotes, thus making Matthew the author of that statement, let the reader understand. And I think what Matthew is trying to say, if if that is correct, if the Holman Christian Study Bible is correct, Matthew is trying to say, look, you need to understand. 
you need to understand when you see this abomination, these Roman armies surrounding the city, you need to get out of Dodge. You need to flee because your life is at stake. So it's important that you understand. Let him understand. This is more than just an ordinary you ought to understand the scripture. This is this, your life is dependent on this. You understand what you're talking, what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the abomination of desolation. Let's go to Matthew 24, verse 16. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. This is talking about the Transjordan Mountains. Pella, of course, is right across the Jordan River. Jesus tells the people, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, to flee to those mountains. They did that. Eusebius of Caesarea, the famous early church historian, tells us that. Here's a quote from Gill. Eusebius and Epiphanius, and I don't know Epiphanius, early source, I don't know him, but I know Eusebius of Caesarea, they say that at this juncture, after Cestius Gallus had raised the siege, and Vespasian was approaching with his army, all who believed in Christ left Jerusalem and fled to Pella and other places beyond the river Jordan, and so they all marvelously escaped the general shipwreck of their country, not one of them perished. An amazing thing. The reason they did that is because Jesus had warned them in advance. Josephus tells us this story the Roman, when the Roman army under Cestius Gallus surrounded Jerusalem, then he left without any visible cause. The Christians fled. This, of course, would have been counterintuitive to all Jews who saw this situation. Because if you see an army coming, you, your tendency is to go into a city to get protection. But the Christians left the city. They fled the city rather than going in. And there were a lot of Jews coming into the city for the Passover, which, of course, just made them sheep full of slaughter when the city finally fell. But the Christians went against the stream as all the Jews were going into the city. The Christian Jews were heading out of the city because they listened to their Lord and they didn't do what everybody else was doing. The application of that ought to be obvious. Parallel passage in Luke 21, 21 says, Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it. Luke adds a little extra detail there. Not only Christians inside the city must leave, but also Christians outside the city. Don't go into that city during that Passover feast. Don't go in there because the city is going down. Now notice that this warning was to those in Judea. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those in, Ju in Judea must flee to the mountains. Of course, futurists who try to make this an end of the world cataclysm should have to explain to me why would just people in Judea be in fleet to the mountains when there's a worldwide apocalyptic battle going on involving the Antichrist? Those in Judea flee to the mountains? How about those in South Carolina? Well, let's talk about this event when the Jewish Christians fled Jerusalem right before the Jewish War. It was in 66 AD, if my memory serves me correctly. Here's the quote from Josephus as recited to us by Adam Clark. In the twelfth year of Nero, Cestius Gallus, the president of Syria, came against Jerusalem with a powerful army. He might, says Josephus, have assaulted and taken the city and thereby put an end to the war. But without any just reason, and contrary to the expectation of all, he raised the siege and departed. Josephus remarks that after Cestius Gallus had raised the siege, many of the principal Jewish people, Poiloritoin, I don't need to read the, the Greek there, Many of the principal Jewish people forsook the city, as men do a sinking ship. Vespasian was deputed in the room of Cestius Gallus in the place of Cestius Gallus, who, having subdued all the country, prepared to besiege Jerusalem and invested it on every side. But 
The news of Nero's death and soon after that of Galba and the disturbances that followed, that's the year of the four emperors, and the civil wars between Otho and Vitellius held Vespasian and his son Titus in suspense. Thus the city was not actually besieged and informed until after Vespasian was confirmed in the empire and Titus was appointed to command the forces in Judea. It was in those incidental delays that the Christians and indeed several others provided for their own safety by flight. So it was not only Cestius Gallus's retreat, but also the fact that Vespasian didn't renew the siege quickly because he was waiting for the settlement of the civil wars in Rome. And so he was distracted and the Christians got out. Let's talk about the providence of God. In Luke 19.43, our Lord says of Jerusalem, Thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee on every, in on every side. Accordingly, Titus, having made several assaults without success, resolved to surround the city with a wall, which was, with incredible speed, completed in three days. The wall was 39 furlongs in length and was strengthened with 13 forts at proper distances so that all hope of safety was cut off, none could make his escape from the city, and no provisions could be brought into it. So you see, Jesus' predictions were fulfilled perfectly. He was a prophet. Matthew 24, verse 17, a man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. Jewish houses back then had flat roofs, and they were approachable by, the roofs were approachable by stairs on the outside, and they also had an inner stairway. And so what he's saying is if you're on your housetop and all of a sudden you see this army that causes desolation, you see it disappear, you see it coming, get ready to, don't waste time going down in your house and packing. Get out of Dodge. Leave quick. People would sit on their housetops for devotion or recreation, so they spent a lot of time up there. So this is a, 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 once you understand the culture of this, it makes sense that a man would be on his housetop. You might read this from a Western point of view and say, well, what would a man be on his housetop for? Fixing his roof? No. They would sit up there to relax, kind of like they do in New York City on the top of apartment houses. No time to relax when Jesus came back in judgment. It's time to get outside. And where you think, well, how can you flee if you don't have to go down to get things out of your house? Because the roofs adjoined each other. They formed terraces from one end of the city to the other, according to Adam Clark. One could walk on the housetops all the way out of the city without ever coming down. So that makes perfect sense. If you take this in a futurist global sense, Great Tribulation, a man on his housetop, you know, most housetops in most places in the world are not flat. So it kind of doesn't really make a lot of sense. Matthew 24, verse 18, and a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Now, of course, all of this is talking about the importance of getting out of Jerusalem quickly before Vespasian and Titus had time to get their act together and start that siege up again. Don't hang around and say, well, there's no army out there. I think I'll just lollygag around. No, get out. Now, don't, don't take time. Why would a man in the field be tempted to go back and get his clothes? What does that mean? Well, because... It sounds like he's working without his clothes, like he's nude or something. He goes back and gets his clothes. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because they would, the people back then, when they were working in the fields, they would strip themselves of their outer garments down to their shirts, and then they would lay their outer garments on the corner of the field. This is according to John Gill. So what Jesus is saying is don't go running back into the field to get your clothes. Just leave with the shirt that you have on your back without getting your outer garment. He doesn't mean don't go back into your house to get your clothes. It means don't go back into the field to get your clothes. Verse 19 of Matthew 24, Jesus continues, Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Why did he say that? By the way, he's not pronouncing a curse on them like he was saying, Woe to you Pharisees, the eight woes in Matthew 23. No, no, no. This is, this is an expression of sympathy. This is going to be bad for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days because it's hard for pregnant women to run and they have to flee. And nursing mothers, it's likewise hard to run. You've got to carry a baby with you. 
In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 21, verse 22, Luke says this, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. In verse 23, Luke says, Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. So we see a few extra details here. Jesus called this days of vengeance. That means vengeance is mine, says the Lord God is punishing the Jews for murdering the Messiah. And again, when I say the Jews, I mean the Jewish leaders at that time, not all throughout history. We don't want to be involved in anti-Semitism with the Catholic Church and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about back then, the Jewish leaders killed Jesus, and there's no getting around that. And and God said that was vengeance. Now, if all these anti the so called these dispensationalists and anti replacement theologians are always complaining about people who say the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies for Israel. That's not anti Semitic, that's Jesus that said that. Days of vengeance on that on that Jewish kingdom. There will be great distress in the land. And of course land is an ex automatic idiomatic expression for Israel, the land case. Luke goes on to say in verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword. That's the people in verse 23. Those people will fall by the edge of the sword in verse 24 and be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now this verse is not in Matthew or Mark, so let's take some time to go over it. As far as captives being led out of Jerusalem after it fell, here's quotes from Josephus. When the city was taken, the most beautiful of the young men were kept for the triumph and those that were above 17 years of age were sent bound into Egypt to labor in the mines. Many were distributed through the provinces to be destroyed in the theaters by the sword or beast. That's the gladiatorial combats. And those that were under 17 years of age were led captive to be sold. And the number of those of these only were 97,000. So 97,000 Jews were carried into captivity. Jesus predicted it. He said... They will be led captive into all the nations. So the, Jew, the Romans scattered them all throughout the provinces. That's throughout the, all the nations, through all the ethnic groups, all the tribes of the Roman Empire. Here's another quote from Josephus. Of the youngsters, he picked out the tallest and handsomest to be kept for the triumphal procession. Of the rest, those over 17, were put in irons and sent to hard labor in Egypt. While the great numbers were presented by Titus to the provinces to perish in the theaters by the sword or by wild beasts. Those under 17 were sold. That's a similar quote. One came from Josephus and Eusebius, and one came just from Josephus. The people that died by the sword, by the way, was 1.1 million, according to Josephus and Eusebius. Captives were 97,000, according to the same sources. So what Jesus said in Luke 21, his version of the Olivet Discourse, directly came to pass. Great distress in the land, people falling by the sword. The times of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, the easiest way to interpret that is the time of the Jewish war when the Romans came in and trampled all over Israel. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. The Gentiles being the Romans, trampled on means being stomped on until, until it's over, until the siege is over and the city is destroyed. That's the easiest way to take that expression. Now, some people say that all this times of the Gentiles, it was referring to the, the times when the church is predominantly Gentile until the Jews come into the church in Romans chapter 11. I don't believe that. I don't think it has anything to do with the context. I think the times of the Gentiles is the three and a half years of the Jewish war in which Jerusalem was besieged and the cities of Israel were invested, trampled on and attacked by the Romans. The Jewish war lasted three years, three and a half years, from AD 66 to AD 70. We got in Revelation 11, 1 through 2, a, a reference to the trampling down 
Revelation 11, 1 through 2, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, Go and measure God's sanctuary. That's John was given a measuring reed. Go and measure God's sanctuary and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the sanctuary. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That is a direct reference to the Romans trampling Jerusalem for three and a half years. That same word trample is used in Revelation. It's used in Luke chapter 21 verse 24. So that's the time of the Gentile. Because in Revelation the city is trampled for 42 months. I didn't translate that 42 months into years. 42 months is three and a half years. Jesus continues in verse 20 of Matthew 24. Pray that your escape may not be in winter on a Sabbath. Why? Well, because... Winter is a bad time to be running for your life, fleeing through mountain passes. That's obvious. That's not a good time to leave. Snow and floods you might occur, you might encounter in the mountain passes. There's an interesting point here. It sounds like Jesus didn't really know the exact year, season, or day. If you want to get theological about it here, I think that's compatible with his divinely knowing all the other stuff he prophesied because, you know, human prophets don't understand everything they prophesy about, and Jesus was human as well as, as divine. And when you get into this, was Jesus acting from his human nature, his divine nature? You can get into interminable, interminable arguments, but I'm not going to worry about that. I just know that he said it's going to be bad if you escape in the winter. Note the problem for futurists. Escaping the winter is not such a big deal for modern people, although it could be. You run out of gas on a car, could be. Depends on where you are in this so-called alleged worldwide cataclysm called the Great Tribulation. Now, why did he say, pray that your escape may not be on a Sabbath? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, Jews were forbidden by rabbinic law to travel more than about a half a mile on the Sabbath, according to my NIV study Bible. And many of these Jews might still be scrupulous about that law. And so here they are having to flee Jerusalem and they get one half mile and they're not at Pella yet. They're stuck in the middle of the woods. So that might be a problem. Although in my opinion, I, I don't know what it's like to be a legalistic Jew, so I can't put myself in their shoes. But if I was running for my life, I would say the ox is in the ditch. I'm keeping on going past a half mile. Here's another suggestion by Adam Clark is that typically the Jews kept themselves indoors on a Sabbath day and they wouldn't allow anybody else in. The towns and cities were barred and the towns and cities wouldn't allow anybody in. So there were no houses, no towns, no cities to embrace and to take in the fleeing Christian Jews leaving Jerusalem. They, they would have no hospitality, nobody to help them. This is not a good time to leave on a Sabbath. It'd be better to be on another day. Either way, I think that explains that somewhat enigmatic expression, don't flee on a Sabbath. Matthew is the only synoptic writer who includes this detail, which is logical since he was a, he was a Jew writing to Jews. They would understand why it would be bad time to flee on a Sabbath. Now, that's the end of the great escape, we could call it. The end of the abomination of desolation, which triggers the fleeing from Jerusalem and the preservation of the early Christian Jewish church, which, of course, kept the church going so that it could then spread throughout the whole world so that you and I could believe in Jesus today. It was a huge event. We'll take up the so-called Great Tribulation next audio, starting with verse 21. I hope you enjoyed this one.